At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor, and he shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever is of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you, as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you for six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but I have had many, many jobs throughout my life, uh, so many and a variety of them. My last year of college, I worked for a home builder installing irrigation systems in a new suburban development. That is not very much what you would expect, (laughs) but it was true. Me and a buddy uh, did that for a summer, uh, basically digging ditches in the Florida heat. It wasn't fun, but I was with a friend, and so we had a good time. Um, The thing, though, that I'll always remember about this job is that me and my friend worked alongside three undocumented workers. Uh, We were on a team together. And um, that was such an important experience for me as a 20-year-old, sort of navigating, working with someone who I I didn't understand their language. Um, We sort of built a friendship over signing together and figuring it out. Um, And I remember a few days that summer, ice would come by and they'd have to go run and hide while the ice officials came and and inspected our papers, right? Um, And they were in the woods hiding. Um, That short-lived experience forever impacted my feelings about immigration, right? There's no way for it not to impact me. Um, And of course, I know that policies are more than feelings, and so immigration is such a complicated thing. But that uh, experience, those relationships shape my thinking to this day. When we read the law in the Old Testament, we always, always need to remember that the Israelites were bringing with them into the promised land an unforgettable experience, the experience of the Exodus, 
it hangs over the entire law. And that includes the first 400 years of slavery to Pharaoh and Egypt, followed by a miraculous deliverance by Yahweh, the God of Abraham who redeemed them from slavery, and then 40 years wandering the wilderness sustained on daily bread, manna. And throughout the law, there is just constant reference to their redemption from Egypt, uh, where it was the reason um, for so much of the regulations that God put on to Israel. And for our purposes in this series on money, it's helpful to remember that the Exodus is not just a religious event. It is an economic event, right? It was an economic change that they underwent. Um, We often forget this, but the word redemption is an economic word before it is a religious word before it's a word about salvation, spiritual salvation. To be redeemed is to be freed from slavery. And so one of the primary words we use for salvation is a metaphor from, for an economic reality. And so wealth starts as gift in Genesis 1, but then after the fall with Abraham and the Exodus, money becomes redemptive. And so gift becomes grace. And they experienced salvation economically. And we live in a society that often wants to bracket out money from life's ultimate questions. And even within the church, we can sort of want to set it aside, but the Bible insists otherwise. Every time we talk about um, and rejoice in our redemption, being redeemed, we are bringing in the, a metaphor um, that is economic. And because wealth and money is so wrapped up in God's picture of salvation, it makes sense then that God cares deeply about the stories we tell with our money individually and corporately. And that's exactly what we find in the Old Testament, starting with the law. And so coming out of Egypt, entering Canaan, God clearly cares a great deal about how Israel relates to wealth. And so throughout the law, God cares about how money is allocated, shared, inherited, about property ownership, about work and rest, about debt, slaves, and servants, about any gap between the rich and the poor. It speaks to his salvation of them. And so there are a lot of rules, and they're all interspersed with reminders of the Exodus, Israel's redemption from slavery. And these laws are meant to remind Israel, remember who you are. Remember what you experienced. Remember that I saved you. Remember that I gave you this land. You didn't receive it or you didn't earn it. The Exodus, redemption from slavery through the wilderness into Canaan, is why God commands his people to live a certain way. It was really hard as I was preparing this week to land on a text for today when I think about what does the law say about money because it says so much. Um, So much of the law pertains to money and possessions. And honestly, it is all fascinating and it's all convicting when you slow down to read it, which is the purpose of the law, right? To convict us of sin. Um, So many of us, I don't know about you, but, but I in the past have struggled to read the Old Testament sympathetically. Um, particularly the law. And some of that is because of our distance. It's like clearly written to another culture. Um, And so it's admittedly confusing. I I used a lot of help this week to, to understand what was being said. But I think some of our, uh, lack of sympathy 
is because of prejudice that we hold against the law. I know that I can feel prejudice towards the law where I come to Leviticus and Deuteronomy already disliking it, right? Already frustrated with it. The law is drudgery to us. Uh, We can disparage it as primitive or backwards. Um, But if you will do the work, um, if you'll seek out the help to actually picture the society that God envisions in the Torah, especially in contrast to the neighboring nations, you will be floored by the beauty and goodness of what God calls his people to. It's definitely the Iron Age, right? It's not the Information Age. But given that context, Deuteronomy is a blueprint for a society that is radically committed to the love of neighbor, especially the most vulnerable neighbors. And so as I have begun to notice that over the years uh, through various teachers and influences, and more and more each year, I love the law. I really do. I love the book of Deuteronomy. I have been tempted many times to preach a sermon series through the book of Deuteronomy. It would take forever um, and, and maybe it would be too much, but it's so fantastic. And so I certainly hope today that we'll leave with specific encouragements about money, but I honestly hope um, that after today's sermon, you simply just love the law more than you did before. That's one of my prayers uh, for this. Uh, The Psalms are full of poems written about God's law. Uh, So Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And we often read that as Christians and we broaden it out to include all of scripture, which is fair. Uh, But David wrote this poem about the law. Like he wrote it about Leviticus, about Deuteronomy. To him, the law of the Lord revived his soul. It rejoiced the heart. And so at a minimum, my prayer is that that spirit would be what we walk away with today, that we would feel revived, that we would feel rejoiced, a heart that rejoices at the beauty of God's law and the goodness of the lawgiver, God our King. And so let's pray for that, and then we'll dive in. Dear Father, we are thankful for your law, and we ask that you would open it up to us. There are all kinds of reasons that it remains far from us. It can be confusing and mysterious and frustrating. Um, It's so distant that it can feel hard to apply. Uh, Because of Jesus, we are freed from the law, and so we can be tempted to think, man, it's it's unnecessary, but it is profitable for us uh, because it points us to your character. It points us to your design for us. And so would you give us hearts which love the law more than we did uh, yesterday? Would you help us to grow in our affection, uh, not just for uh, your grace and for the gospel, uh, but also for the law that undergirds it? And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, As I said, we can't talk through everything the law says about money. And so what I want to focus on today is the Sabbath. We talk a lot about the Sabbath when it comes to time, Um, but, and and that's... uh, and that's natural, like do we, we're taking time to rest, but because the Sabbath is about ceasing from work, 
it also has a lot of implications for how we think about money. Uh, it's often our anxiety about money, about finances, about what we have and don't have that keeps us from resting from work. That's what prevents us um, from resting. And that makes sense because the Sabbath, of course, is going to have significant economic costs. Uh, for the Israelite, by not working every seventh day, their economic output is going to be substantially limited compared to the nations around them. A commitment to worship has financial consequences for the people of God. And we already saw that with the tithe last week with Abraham. But at least with the tithe, you get to keep 90%, right? But with the Sabbath, you get nothing, right? 90% of nothing is nothing. And so uh, that is costly. Practicing the Sabbath requires us to trust God to provide for us when we're idle, uh, to trust him financially. Uh, it requires us to find our identity in God and not what we produce. Uh, it is an economic statement um, as much as it is anything else. Walter Brueggemann writes, in Sabbath rest, the community publicly asserts that life is not defined by production, consumption, and possession, but by the economic emancipation made possible by the Lord of the Exodus. It is a public, visible declaration against money as reality. It is an active form of resistance against insatiable desire that so often leads to brutalizing seizure. And so it is very much given in the context of a former life as slaves when they got no day off for 400 years. And so God frees them and then he gives them the gift of a day off. It, it's hard to imagine the mercy of that as people who live in a culture, a Judeo-Christian culture that does prioritize rest um, to a degree. There's like so many ways that it doesn't, but at least it's sort of in there somewhere. And uh, this is an, uh, it, it's an active form of resistance when we commit to a Sabbath. The Sabbath was first instituted at creation. So in Genesis 1, God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. And so God commands us to do the same, to work six days and rest on the seventh. But then after Israel's redemption, the Sabbath takes on an additional meaning. Uh, listen to how Deuteronomy 5 talks about Sabbath. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so now, not only is Israel supposed to remember the Sabbath in light of creation, they're also to remember the Sabbath in light of the Exodus. When the nation ceased from work every seventh day, they were reminding themselves that they were no longer slaves. By resting, they were saying to their minds, to their hearts, and even their bodies, I'm not in Egypt any longer. So I don't have to work every day. I don't have to make brick from straw. I can stop and rest. I can stop and feast. I can stop and worship. Not only can I stop, I must stop. 
because I serve Yahweh and he commands me to stop. And he promises to meet all my needs so that I can stop. And this spiritual discipline has economic consequences because work is how we earn money. Work is how we take care of our stuff, right? And so when we choose to stop work, we stop earning money. We stop taking care of ourselves. And while we aren't required to practice the literal Sabbath as Christians, we should ask ourselves, what is the story I am telling myself and others with how I work and how I rest? Does my work rest habits align with what is true about creation? And does it align with what is true about redemption? Is my money, work, and rest a story about being set free to worship? Do I feel freedom? Or do I feel enslaved to my work? Do I feel enslaved to my possessions, the chores and the stuff that fills our minds and weekends and evenings? Am I enslaved to productivity, to competency, to upward mobility? These are all important questions to consider when we think about the story of our money and how we come to our money. But this isn't the only redemptive storyline embedded in the weekly Sabbath. The law always connects loving God to loving neighbor. And so notice God's commitment to equality in the Sabbath command. It's not just the wealthy who get to rest. The servants rest. It's not just the Jew who rests, but the stranger in his gates. Right? It's not just the men, it's the women. Even the animals and the land are all given the Sabbath and expected to rest. And so it turns out that our rhythms of work and rest are not merely individual, Instead, they are meant to express how we together were redeemed, how we were redeemed from slavery together, redeemed into a community of equals. It's not a true Sabbath without everyone in attendance, including the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. In the Old Testament, Sabbath rest and worship was a corporate event that required corporate cooperation. And so most of our conversations around Sabbath are engaged individually, right? We, we mostly think about what we individually are doing in our commitment to work and rest. And that's appropriate because there's a part of Sabbath obedience which is individual. I can't make you obey. You can't make me obey. But I can stand in the way of your obedience. And so we should also ask ourselves, is my relationship to work and rest helping others work and rest? First of all, is my overwork leading to the overwork of others? Uh, George and I have to, as we work together, we're really mindful of how our work affects the other person, how our rest affects the other person. And so that's a regular point of conversation to make sure that we are encouraging one another in healthy rhythms of work and rest. Maybe a colleague can't rest because I won't rest. Or what I think is more top of mind in Deuteronomy, maybe my rest depends on others not resting. Right? This is why historically many, many Christian communities have not done any business on Sundays. They, they won't go out to eat, right? They always cook at home. They, they never want to do anything. They don't want to shop on Sunday. And maybe we don't go that far, but it's a, it's a completely defensible position. 
Um, and regardless of, of how we come out on that, we should ask ourselves, is my practice of Sabbath just? Does it tell the story of God's redemption of a community? Does it contribute to equality among people who are across the economic spectrum? Coming out of Egypt, God commands everyone to honor the Sabbath. And in essence, he's saying to Israel, I did not save you from economic oppression for you to oppress others, right? It can never be the case that some of you rest and some of you don't. Our rest cannot be at the expense of others. Don't be like Pharaoh. When you go into Canaan, you are not to be like Pharaoh. You are not to be like Canaan. Now, of course, there are still slaves in Israel. And so isn't that a bit like Pharaoh, right? What does God plan to do about that? Well, he does a lot of things. But in addition to the weekly Sabbath, God institutes two additional Sabbaths. The first is the year of release that Lila read about. Deuteronomy 15.1, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. This is a second Sabbath. So every seven days we cease from work. And every seven years, all debt between Israelites is canceled. Uh, if you remember, predatory lending was already against God's law. You weren't allowed to make money off someone's misfortune, so you weren't allowed to charge exorbitant interest rates or any interest. But loaning money to a neighbor in need was not just allowed, but it was required. It was expected. Verse 7, if among you one of your brothers should become poor... In any of your towns within your lands that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. This is unprecedented in the ancient Near East and really uh, it's unprecedented today, right? That not only would we say, you know what, it's good and kind and compassionate to lend to a neighbor in need. It's written into the law. God's blessing of Israel depends on Israel doing this. And that's just not found anywhere else in any other culture. Now, that alone is a hard command to obey, right? Um, if you're the wealthy one in the relationship, and, and not really wealthy, but if, if you just have and the other person's need, I'm expected to give them whatever they need. But even harder than that is this year of release, Basically, in order to prevent cycles of debt and a permanent underclass, God commands that all debt must be released every seven years, no question. That it just resets. And so it, if you loaned money to somebody, they would pay it off. They would be expected to be working towards it. But at the end of seven years, if they had not paid it all off, it would be done and we would be wiped clean. This was nationwide. And this is also hard, especially the closer you get to year seven, right? If your neighbor has a need in year six, you kind of know he's not going to be able to pay that off. We've only got a year left, right? And God acknowledges this, but he still commands it. In verse nine and 10, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say the seventh year, the year of release is near. 
and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. And so just like with stopping work on the Sabbath, where we have to trust God that he will provide for us, God asks again the Israelite to trust him. If you obey in this way, I won't leave you hanging. I will bless you in all your work. Now, sometimes a person's debt was so bad that loans weren't enough, and so they would actually sell themselves into slavery, debt slavery. So most often when you see references to slaves in Israel, it's debt slavery. Um, Now, of course, this is not what anyone wants, but God is very clear that in this circumstance, this person is to be treated well. So Leviticus 25, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. Um, if, If you're thinking about this, this is an agricultural society, and so there are lots of reasons, a fire, a bad crop, somebody gets sick and dies, where they're no longer able to provide for themselves. And in this situation, uh, they're going to sell their, uh, they might sell themselves to you and just work for you, and you are going to provide for them. You are going to meet their needs. You're to treat them well, Leviticus 25, verse 42, for they are my servants whom I brought you out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Now, some people are treated so well that God actually gives people in the law an option to stay slaves for the rest of their lives, um, which sort of should speak to the potential good here. But for most people, that's not going to be what they want. And in the year of release, they can choose to be set free. So the year of release applies to debt. It also applies to people. Deuteronomy 15, 12 to 15. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. And so that's sheep and oil and wine, the, the wealthiest crops that they have. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. And so this is the second Sabbath. So first you have a Sabbath every seven days. Then you have a Sabbath every seven years. Last, you have a Sabbath every seven Sabbath years. So that's the 50th year, and it's the year of Jubilee. Um, During the year of Jubilee, uh, what happens is everything just simply resets. And so when Israel went into the land, the land was divided among the 12 tribes and among the clans and the families. Everybody got a plot of land and and basically everybody got wealth. That is wealth in an agricultural society, right? Is land. So everyone gets it. And during the year of Jubilee, no matter what happens over that 50 year period, all families and clans return to the land assigned to them. And so if someone's poverty got so bad where they had to sell their property to someone outside their family, and despite the release of debt every seven years, they were just never able to buy it back. In the 50th year, they get it back. That's it. It's, it's a wild system. And you think about 
how the year of release prevents a downward spiral of debt, and this prevents a generational spiral, right? There's no way for this next generation to continue to suffer in poverty. Even if I'm a terrible dad, maybe I lose everything, not because of some accident, but because of my own culpability. My children will get it back. It will be reset. God is committed to a society that is equal. And so just like the Sabbath year, this is intended to prevent a widening gap between the rich and the poor. God did not want a permanent economic imbalance in the social fabric where certain tribes dominate others. He did not want a wealthy class and an underclass, a perpetual underclass. That's a recipe for conflict, surely. But more than that, it dishonors God's redemption of them from Egypt. It tells the wrong story. It tells a false story about who God is, his character, his love for people. Israel must remain a nation of equals following God together. The theological implication of the year of Jubilee is that God owns the land and merely lends it to us as stewards. Basically, he gives us a 50-year lease that he renews every 50 years. It's always his. I don't own my wealth. I lease it from God. And the theological meaning of the year of release is that God also owns the people. They are his people. He redeemed them, right? And so that means that I can't sell myself. I cannot, you cannot sell a person. You can sell years of labor, right? You, you can sell, but even then, no more than seven years, no more than seven years. There's a limit. It's going to reset. I deserve to be treated well, like a full member of the covenant community, and I deserve to be restored so that the wealthy, the fortunate, are meant to contribute to the neighborliness of others. And so a poor, someone who is impoverished can't be a full neighbor. And so I'm going to do everything I can so that they can be a full neighbor, a full member of the community. We should just take a minute and pause and just marvel at how radical these provisions are, right? And honestly, this is three laws of many. The Torah includes lots of small provisions that would prevent most families from ever getting to this point. But think through these three Sabbaths. It's hard to fathom them, really. It's hard to fathom a society that operates this way. It's such good news for the poor. And so we marvel at the compassion. But that good news comes at a great cost to the community, right? Caring for those in need is demanding, which is why Israel was exiled for disobedience on this front. So they didn't keep this. And so later, God talks about their failure to keep the Sabbath, their failure to care for the poor is why they are returned to slavery in Babylon. It's judgment. This is hard, but as Brueggemann again writes, the needy are front and center in the Old Testament teaching on money and possessions. Economic matters must yield to social reality. 
That is a great principle. Economic matters must yield to social reality. And the social reality is that if the needy are kept in debt, they cannot be viable neighbors. And that's what God is after, a nation of neighbors. A nation of brothers and sisters, a people united by their redemption and fully empowered to worship God together as their Redeemer King, it's breathtaking. The rich and the poor, both, all, are equal members of the covenant community, which means that both are entitled to share in its blessings. I mean, isn't it, isn't it beautiful? Staying true to this vision is going to be a constant struggle. Like, a struggle which they will ultimately fail at, but it's not impossible. Uh, Deuteronomy 15 is clear that God doesn't ask us to do impossible things. Uh, Deuteronomy 15:4, there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. He will provide everything Israel needs to do this. You have enough to obey, But then, curiously, Deuteronomy goes on to say seven verses later, verse 11, there will never cease to be poor in the land. So first it says there will be no poor among you, but then it says there will never cease to be poor. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. And so how do we connect those two things? There will be no poor. There will never cease to be poor. I think what the law is trying to say here is that first, that if we are obedient in our care for the poor, God will always sufficiently bless the community so that there's enough for everyone. But that blessing must be constantly stewarded so that no one goes without. So we are going to constantly be attending to people in need right? He gives us enough, but the way it works, he doesn't, divide, he doesn't give it equally, right? There's all kinds of things that happen, and so we are going to have to constantly steward our resources so that truly there shall be no poor among us. It's going to take work, but it's good work. This is neighborly economics, And what I mean by that is in economics where the mere presence of my neighbor's need burdens my wealth because I love him and I love God. And there's all kinds of things like, man, if if you want to dig in here, there's so many nuances and and helpful things. Um, You know, it's interesting that they do... um, You know, we talk about loans. There's not a lot of just pure gift, um, that goes on, so why, so why do they give loans? And, and a lot of scholars talk about how that means that there's dignity to work, right? And so that if someone's in need, um, they're provided for, but they also contribute as a full member of the community. So gleanings, when Ruth goes and she gleans the edges of the field, that is a gift, it's a mercy, but she also has to go and do it, right? She, it, it dignifies those people in need because they contribute to uh, the ongoing community. It's, it's really wild, um, and it's hard to know how to apply these specific legal provisions to our situation today. First, though, again, man, I just hope you're humbled by the beauty of God's law. 
the old covenant was not abolished because there was something wrong with it, right? There was nothing wrong with it. The old covenant was abolished because there was something wrong with us, right? It was perfect. I am not. And so God sent Christ to die for our sins because humanity fails consistently to love the poor like this. On the contrary, under our economics, the poor only get poor, which just sucks. It's so hard to climb out of poverty without substantial nationwide focus on relieving poverty because things happen and we need to be ready to care. And that's still true. Now with Christ's resurrection, as the church having been given a new covenant with new hearts, God again presents this model to us to live out. And we don't live in the Iron Age, so it's not going to be the same. We live in an information age But we are called to the same twin commands, to love God and love our neighbor. And so how, in light of that, does Deuteronomy apply? And I don't know, but I'll take a guess. I think, as we consider the Sabbath for the new covenant, one thing to remember is that the Sabbath is not only a gift, it's also a limit. Our commitment to worship and community will limit us. There's an economic consequence to Sabbath rest, both as it pertains to worship and community. So what I accomplish, what I earn, what I save, what I do, it's all going to be limited. It has to be. Because, right, I'm going to stop to regularly worship God. I'm going to stop daily and weekly annually, and that costs something. That stop costs something. And I'm going to be called by God to regularly share what I have with others in the covenant community, including the poor, including the sojourner in our midst, who's here but not uh, uh, with us, truly, but they're here. And, and that call to give, that costs something too. Actual money, surely, but also just lost earning power, lost productivity, Following Christ limits us. And you'll be tempted to get sad about that. I am certainly tempted to be sad about that. But I promise you it's good news. It is good news. Christ calls himself Lord of the Sabbath. And in one of the Bible's sweetest passages, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I can't read Matthew 11 without sighing in relief. It's such a beautiful picture. The Sabbath is such a good thing. I so desperately want his easy yoke and light burden. But you know the downside of easy yokes and light burdens you can't carry as much, right? You're not as productive. When Christ saves us from slavery, he doesn't promise to make us stronger, right? Are you heavy laden? Have I got a workout plan for you, right? You're gonna accomplish all that the world expects you to accomplish, but it's gonna be easy because you're gonna be strong. That is not what he says in Hebrews 11. 
That's not what he promises. What does he promise? He promises an easier yoke, a light burden. He promises to take off the too heavy weight of sin, the too heavy weight of the world, the enslaving weight, and to replace it with a burden more our size, better suited to our weak frame, one where you work six days and you rest on the seventh, one where you have enough to worship and to feast even, but not too much. That's more our speed. And now you can actually go that speed without guilt or shame or anxiety because you're not a slave anymore. And so you can go slow. This is what it means to be redeemed. We can go slow now. We can carry less than we carried before and we can go together. I read an article this week about Sabbath and I can't remember anything the article said past the first paragraph because what struck me so deeply was that it opened with Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Uh, literally what Paul, the word Paul uses for making the best use of time is redeem, redeem the time. That's the verse that I grew up, the translation I grew up with. And I was kind of startled by this verse's use in an article about rest. Because Ephesians 5.16 has always pushed me to do more. Right? It's always loomed big in my heart. And it's honestly always created in me a sense of guilt and shame and anxiety. I can't count how many times I've overworked because of this verse for Jesus. The days are evil. Redeem the time. You don't have time to rest. You don't have time to go slow. You don't have time to be weak. You need to perform. You need to be strong. You need to work. It's not been a verse about redeeming anything. It's been a it's, it's enslaving to me. And I just couldn't believe that this pastor used this verse to talk about rest. It was disorienting to think that practicing Sabbath is a way of redeeming the time. But it makes sense, right? Because what is redemption? Freedom from slavery. I'm not a slave. The days are evil. The days are enslaving. They need to be set free. And we live in an Egyptian culture, in a Canaanite culture that it seeks to enslave us, to define us by our performance, to define us by our consumption, that is constantly after us to do more and to be more, to eat more to intake more, and we need to be set free. And the way we are set free is by resting. God sent Christ to redeem you, to free you from slavery. And God wants to redeem you. He wants to redeem your time. He wants to redeem your work. He wants to redeem your money to remove the burden of slavery and to put on a yoke more suitable to your frame, 
a yoke of weakness, a yoke of Sabbath, a yoke of worship and neighborliness. And so will we receive his redemption? It'll limit what you can carry. You won't be able to carry as much, but it's worth it. Let's pray.